Welcome. With Michael Hi, it's Michael Smirkanish. As a serious XM and CNN host, I'm known for speaking, but frankly, I read for a living. I need to know what to say, and so I consume over two dozen newspapers and websites daily. I read opposing views and studies and court cases and orders and op-eds just so I can discuss current events on radio and television. But my favorite reading? Books. Old school. And my favorite interviews are with book authors. Book Club with Michael Smirconish is now in session. All right, the hour has arrived. I've been hyping this for a couple of days, but both TC and Dan, who have heard what you are about to hear, tell me that it lives up to the billing. Yes. Either of like, uh, you like to go on record and extend yourselves? Oh, I'll extend myself. I thought this was absolutely fascinating. I was a huge Sopranos fan. Um, I've been watching The Godfather religiously on HBO since it's been running on a continuous loop for the past month. And I felt like I was involved in something like that. It is so I mean, cool. I, right? Yes. What we're going to hear over the next hour, the details of the mob world. I'm, I was fascinated, Michael. I can't wait to hear it again. Well, he, guys, would say, he, would say, he would say things that were like, you know, inside lingo and, and just keep running with it. As though he was talking to another, you know, guy, quote, in the life. The he we're referring to is John Gotti Jr., not only son of the Gambino, the late Teflon Don, John Gotti Sr., but also, according to law enforcement, at one time himself the head of the family. He is now out of the life, as he puts it. And the the beauty of, of what's about to unfold really has to do with Sirius XM and POTUS. And I don't say that to the detriment of CNN, my other employer, but rather it's that we have time. We don't have the constraints that they do. Last weekend on my on my CNN program, John Gotti Jr., having just authored a book, was my guest. And we extended him for two segments, which is a lot. That's about 12 minutes of television time. And tomorrow there's a piece that will be aired on my CNN program where he talks about John Travolta and the movies and so the TV shows. It's crazy right. when you hear what he right. has to say. But all told, so let's say that'll be another five minutes uh, of uh, a video that will run on, on CNN. We're still less than 50% yeah. of what I've got on record from my conversation with Gotti Jr. And you, SiriusXM POTUS listeners, are about to hear it all because I have the CNN audio. I refer to this as the Gotti tapes. And we've broken it up into four segments, and we think it's great stuff. Really great stuff. Without a doubt. So let me say that this is the outset of the interview, and this first question that I put to him didn't make the air. Uh, it was it was me talking to him about his father. You're about to hear things that people watching television didn't get to see. That's what I'm trying to tell you. So let me just shut up and get to the audio. Here comes John Gotti Jr. Would Dad be pleased or disapproving? If he could see you today, knowing you've left the life behind. Uh, you know, it's hard to answer. And let, me, let me tell you why. My father believed so wholeheartedly in that life that I guess uh, he may view it today as me quitting, as me being a quitter, not following through. Uh, for example, one snippet of a conversation that he and I had had at the end, and the, actually it was, a, it was the first time we had touched in seven and a half years, while he's in jail. While he's, in, he's dying of cancer and he's in solitary confinement, they had moved him to Springfield. And while he's in Springfield, I had asked him a question about something. And 
about perspectives changing. You know, once you get married and you have children, your perspectives change, Dad. You can't tell me yours didn't. And he looked at me and says, well, what do you mean? He pressed me a little further. And I would say, well, you know, my children now, I mean, I've never imagined in my life that I could love anything like I love my children. And once having my children, I look at them and I could not even imagine not being there for them. And I know, sooner or later, this ends usually when you're a real player in the life, not some clown on the sidelines and one or two-year guy. You're a real player. You're either going to jail for a long period of time, or even worse, you're going to end up in a dumpster, as my father would say. You know, you can get two in your hat and end up in a dumpster. And the thought of me not being there for my kids troubled me deeply. So I come to that conclusion. I started after my first child was born. Slowly, you start going in a different direction. You don't believe as much. And right around that time, my dad gets incarcerated. He gets convicted in April 2nd of 1992. Uh, and he's sentenced right from court, direct court committal, life without possibly parole, right to a super maximum, which is a level six. There's only one at that time in the country, level six prison, which is Marion, Illinois. That means you're deadlocked 24-7, basically, for the most part. Okay, really about 40 minutes a day, they're supposed to lock you out for recreation. But in my father's case, all too often, it didn't work out that way. So now at that point, I'm visiting my father, and now we jump ahead seven years. He's dying of cancer, and I'm given permission from the judge. I won't take a deal. They offered me a plea deal on my case, and I refused the plea deal. I said, I won't take it unless I can speak to my father. So the judge completely shocked me by turning around and saying, well, why can't he go visit his father? Prosecution jumps up and says, no, 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 Your Honor, these two men can't be in the same room. I said, what do you mean? It's his father. He says, no, they communicate in code, and even the CIA would have a hard time deciphering it. He says, nonsense. There's no reason why father and son can't meet. I'm going to grant you a visit, a 90-minute visit. I was in shock. So now I was going to get to see my father. I didn't know what I was going to see, but I went to see my father. I haven't seen him at that point in close to two years now, at that point. I just, I just got out on bail. I was incarcerated as well. So I had a marshal escort to take me to Springfield to see my dad. And what I had seen was the cancer taking its toll. Part of his jaw was missing, part of his tongue. Uh, he was probably about 50 pounds lighter than the man we remember. And when he used to walk into the visiting room of Marion, he was always this larger-than-life character. He'd hit the window, and he would say, how you doing? If he seen us a little down, he'd talk me up, get me going again. Now I seen him, basically, it was like he looked old. He was just like the cancer was really just... And you're there to explain to him, I've had enough. I don't even know how I'm going to approach it. Because now looking at my father, I'm feeling like I'm taken aback, and I'm saying, what do I say? He believed so wholeheartedly in that, that existence. Did he accept it? I tell you, we have a snippet of a, of a conversation, and you tell me if you think uh, that, that 17 or 18 seconds, if he thinks he's really coming to terms with it. John, tell me about that scene. What's going on? That was the uh, final visit between my father and I. Uh, that was the visit I was telling you about earlier that Judge Parker allowed me. Uh, it was the first time I had touched my father in probably seven and a half years. No glass for this visit. No glass. Because everybody knows it's the final visit. First time in seven and a half years, no glass. That's why in the beginning you don't see what's off camera. It's very emotional for me. And he's telling me basically uh, uh, don't give them the satisfaction. I, was, I began to cry. And he's saying don't give them the satisfaction. Don't give them the satisfaction because he's a tough guy to the end, my father. 
And at that meeting, you hear him saying, closure. I had sent him a message. I'm looking for some closure, Dad. I want to take my time, forfeit some monies, and go to jail. And I want to be there for my kids. And I want to get out of the life. Well, that's closure. Closure is you got to walk away completely and totally. He didn't want to hear that. He's having he a hard... says it's an MFing word. He's having a hard time because it's like being a quitter. It's to him, it's like, uh, you know, again, man chooses a path, doesn't matter. If some point in your life you feel it was the wrong choice, a man's, to be a man, has got to follow that path but all the way to the, the end. Here's the hard part that I have understanding this, though. Again, right. seeing how many guys end up dead or in jail, you know, why a father doesn't say, yeah, get the closure, leave this life, that I, yeah. that I don't understand. I guess he was too much a man, and I guess that he, you know... As I had written in the book, and I believed this, as much as he loved us, I think we were second to that life. I think he loved what he you was. You think his family was second to that yes, family, he loved, to the Gambino family? He, he loved us differently, but his whole life was about the streets. His whole life was about that chase, the streets. And I believe, you know, he just, it was so in him that there's no way he was going to change. How, how was your mother in accepting that the family was second to... I the know. life. I don't think he quite put it like that to her. Right, but she had to have known. Uh, she knew. She knew what she married. My mother knew what my father was. You know, he was a he was a rough and tumble kind of guy from the moment she met him. You know, she was seventeen, he was nineteen. They were kids together. Uh, they lived together very young. They, they were, from the time they met, they were together. And you know what? She knew what she was getting. I would tell my mother oftentimes when she complained about my father and she would argue and fight. I said, "Ma, is this something new? I mean, you're telling me so at some point he changed." No. Right. So he's always been this way, right? Friday and Saturday nights, he's home, right? He comes home, he's with you. Sunday, he has dinner on the table. He has dinner with all of us on Sunday. The rest of the week, you don't see the guy. Your whole life has been like that. He rolls in at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, and he rolls out at 11 o'clock, and he's gone. You don't see him again. That's the way. It, you see him in the morning. Butch, get my vitamins. Butch, get this, get that. That's it. She, she brings a, a socks out for him. He puts his socks on. He put a sweatsuit on, jump in the car, and drive to the club. And he had someone have his, his clothes already laid out waiting for him. And that was it. The barber to do his hair. And you saw him at 4 or 5 in the morning. You told a story about how he gets out of jail. The car pulls up. You're a young boy. Right. He acknowledges you. Right. And he has to ask you a question. What does he want to know? Which scene was it? Which was it? Is this in Brooklyn? Which house? Well, he wanted to know. He didn't, he'd never seen the house. We lived in 311 H Street in Brooklyn. And... From there, my, my, he, my father went to prison, and we moved to Canarsie. So now, he, he, my mother told him where the house was, and I would continuously tell the kids in the block, because I had no father as far as they were concerned. I would say, you know, my dad's doing construction. He used to tell us when he was in Lewisburg that he was building the wall. And when we'd walk in the visiting room, Angelo Ruggiero would be there, Mickey Boy Paradiso, Frankie DiCicco, they were all in the visiting room. It's like reunion time. And he would say, yeah, 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 me and Uncle Frankie and me and Uncle Angelo were building the wall. We've got one more wall to build, and I'm coming home. So I go home and tell everybody my dad's doing construction. He'll be home soon. It's almost done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And everybody in the block began to doubt. Uh, he doesn't have a father. She's a single parent. There's no father. Until no the car father. pulled up. It's, you know what? It was a march. After we had snow on the ground. I'm out on the block playing with the other kids. And it's beautiful black, uh, I'm sorry, char charcoal brown, Mark IV Lincoln Continental pulls down the block. Got a tinted wind, light tint on the windows. And the window roll stops, slows by me, and then the window rolls down. He goes, hey, Dad. He used to call me Dad. I said, there's my father. Everybody's in shock. He says, where's the house? And I pointed, the one with the green awning. He said, I see over there. And the car pulls away. 
everybody began to come out of their houses. And now in Canarsie at that time, you had about 13 steps, and then you had the, I guess, the, the top, the porch was up, up on the top. You come out of the house, you had to go down about 13 steps. They were all standing on their porches. And the car pulls into the driveway, and he gets out. And, and he, he w walks in like he's been there his whole life. He's beautiful. He is Tony Curtis with muscles. He's beautiful. He's had jet black hair. He's got a chocolate brown overcoat on, chocolate brown suit, a mock neck, and he matches the car, and he looks amazing. And he grabs him by the back. He says, come on, let's go in the house. And we walked in the house, and that was his first time seeing that house. Yeah. Let, let me tell you what comes clear from reading the book. You continue to idolize your father. Right. At some level, do you also blame him? Do you hold him accountable no, for no, the fact? No, well, let no. me just finish. For, for the sorry, fact I'm that you, you went down that road yeah. for a significant portion of your life. Well, from a father's perspective, and you're, you're being a father yourself, you would say, well, how could you? You would say, how could you? Uh, I, I, I sort of feel the way, same way my father may feel right now. My son doing MMA, MMA fighting. MMA fighting, I'm sorry. Uh, something I don't want him to do. Uh, something it's a strain on my heart to watch him do that. And yet my father, looking at me, I guess, he felt that I wanted this really uh, more than he wanted it for me. I wanted to be in that world. And I guess he had said that, look, you know, this is what he wants. I believe in this life wholeheartedly. I think it's no different than H.W. Bush bringing his son into politics. He believed. He believed he was a Republican, card-carrier member. He believed in the, in, the, in the political world. He believed that he somehow he could make a change in politics. Well, my dad believed he was a card-carrying hoodlum. He believed in the streets. He believed in the policy of the streets. He thought that this is the way it should be. We're right, they're wrong. So now, that being said, why not? Hey, we're back in real time. I'm Michael Smirkanish. That's a portion of my interview with John Gotti, Jr. How about the line where he talks about dad coming home from the slammer, quote, Tony Curtis with muscles? <laughs> Tony Curtis with us and and how, you know, going into the mob for him was like W following in the footsteps of George Herbert Walker Bush. Plenty more lies ahead. The Gotti tapes in just a moment. This is the book club with Michael Smirconish podcast from Sirius XM. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM channel 124 and on the SXM app. Welcome back. So last week on, on CNN, I interviewed John Gotti Jr. Less than 50% of the interview made the television airwaves just because of their time constraints. But you, the POTUS audience, you are getting to hear the totality of what I call the Gotti tapes. Was it hard to get that interview? Yes, it was hard to get the interview. There were a lot of fits and starts. Uh, I thought he was going to be on three weeks ago, and then, you know, it couldn't happen, and then it was penciled in, but maybe it wouldn't. He doesn't do a lot of media. Right. He doesn't do a lot of, of interviews. There were no ground rules. His lawyer did call me in advance and tried to just sort of take my temperature, and I said, truthfully, look, I'm just interested in the big picture stuff and the dynamics between father and son, because the book that he wrote goes very deep into four different of his trials, all of which ended in a hung jury. And I didn't want to do that because I knew that I would lose the audience if I did. More now of my conversation with John Gotti Jr. Everything that I know about the mob, I learned from watching movies and reading your book. So you okay. correct me where I'm wrong. I thought made okay. guys couldn't get out. How did you get out? Well, in actuality, you could do anything you want to do. Okay, now, you make a decision in your life and you could say... It's no longer for me, and I want to move on with my life. And they let you go, or only if you're John Gotti you know, Jr.? Look, that's my prerogative, okay? My prerogative to say, okay, I'm done, I'm moving on. 
Their prerogative is to A, accept it, or B, act on it. Now, at the time in 2006 of my trial, when all this noise was being made about that two years, you know, that I had walked away, and that now it's, it's being profiled more and more at the trial, there was a death threat. There was a death threat that there was a conspiracy to kill me as a result of my leaving the life because you can't leave the life. But in my case, in actuality, I could have left the life because my father's power is absolute. And right, you're John Gotti's son, so you could lead the life, but maybe somebody else who is not John Gotti's son couldn't. Let me ask you something else. Okay. I don't understand this. It seems that, that most of the guys end up dead or in jail. Right. So why is it so intoxicating for street guys right. to nonetheless pursue the life? Do they all think, well, that's them, but it's yeah. not going to happen to me? Uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you from my viewpoint. From my viewpoint, being around my father, it was intoxicating. When he walked into a room, he owned everything that was in that room. I just would look at him in awe. I was starstruck every time I saw him. Even in the house, in his bathrobe, I was starstruck by the guy. The way he comported himself, he was always erect. He was always proper. He always had his hair coughed right. He looked right. He said the right things. Brioni suits, 2000 a pop? Outside of the home, yes. Not in the house, Brioni suits. Right. But he, always, he always comported himself like, my, like I believe the man should comport themselves. He was a tough guy. A tough guy is a tough guy. And he had, he had his ethics I liked. I liked the things that he stood for. He would say, John, you don't do this. We don't do drugs. You don't do that. Uh, if I would get angry and curse in front of my mother... Hey, pal, something wrong with you? No, nothing wrong with me. What happened again? He shoot me a look. He did everything right. Now, don't get me wrong. When he was hanging around the boys, he had a volcanic temper, and I'm sure, you know, you could hear him on tape, some choice words. You know, that was the other John. But the John that I seen in the house was really, he was, to me, he was perfect. He was beautiful. True or false? You got to kill somebody to get made yourself. Oh, nonsense. Hogwash. True or True or false? When you're made, you've got to burn a picture of a saint. You write about this in your book. Right. In your hand at some private ceremony. Right. right. That's true. That's true. That is true. True or false? New York Post reported, I think, in 2006 that you contemplated, as they say, singing for the feds. Was there a time when you came close to actually reporting on others who were made? Well, there was a time. Do we have time to explain it? There was a time where... I just had gotten, for me really give you the right, put in this proper perspective, I'd have to jump back to 1996, if I may. In 1996, there was, you, you had two cooperators, two different times, one in 95 and one in 2002. And they both reported that there was rival factions within the family. There was mine, and there's another group headed by a guy named Jimmy Brown Fiella, okay? And these two factions, according to Don Borghese, one cooperator, that one faction was conspiring to kill me. They were going to kill me as soon as my father lost his appeal, and it's in their 302s and their documentation. The other cooperator is Mikey Scars de Leonardo. He had reported that I was going to kill them, okay? They wanted to kill me as well as we wanted to kill them. Now, going back to 1996, the government had leaked documentation into the street, and it appeared in Daily News that one of the members of that crew was a CI. Now, I don't wholeheartedly... Confidential informant. That's right. I don't wholeheartedly believe it. However, the article went on to say, and a document that was leaked out into the street that found its way into my father's hands that the reason why my father was going to die in Marion, Illinois, he was, he was in solitary confinement, was because of this individual, this particular individual. And they negotiated a plea deal, and to make his deal look right, everybody got six- and seven-year deals for murders. When we all know in my last case in 1998, for habitual mopery, 
I got the same deal. I got seven years for habitual mopery, and I had to focus. I had to forfeit millions of dollars. Nobody forfeited anything. Everybody got six- and seven-year deals for murders, and they all went on and did so that So did time. you come close to being an informant? Well, here's what happened. Now you jump ahead. I'm about to be released from prison, and what happens is I get hit with a case I'm facing 110 years. I got anger in my heart, and I still got some treachery left over from my old life. So I try to manufacture in my mind how I can pull these two individuals, mainly the, name, the, the, the main individual who was accused of being a CI, into this scheme that I had designed and devised uh, to basically pit them against the government, so to, speak, so to speak, to basically set him up to be a lie. I was going to lie and try to cooperate against him. The meeting was set up. I went in. I scripted the meeting. It was very unusual. It never happens. I brought my own notes. They didn't ask me another question. I said what I, I talked about what I wanted to talk about, and it was all outdated stuff that could never be used. In fact, over 10 years later, no one's ever been inconvenienced in the slightest. Not a subpoena, not a case, nothing, but me. Because as a result of that meeting, I got five trials in less than four years, diesel therapy to death, solitary confinement for many, 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 many months, and that was my punishment, I guess, for sort of sticking it or wronging the government. But to answer your question, what brought me to that point was revenge. Pure and simple but revenge. You never, but you never did it. I wouldn't do it. When I went back to my cell, Michael, after that quick meeting, I was so sick to my stomach, I says, what a punk. You became a punk. You do that, and, and, and of no loyalty to the streets, because I don't care when I order about any of them. How could I do this to my sons? I've got a son named John Gotti. I've got a son named Frankie. I've got a son named... How could I make them bury their heads in the sand and change their... Mikey Scars, his son, went and changed his name. What gives me the right to do that to my sons? I'd rather die in jail. Five trials in four years. Less than four years. About I think it was 38, 39 months. Before one of, you're waiting for a verdict. You're very close to a verdict in one of them. I think the last one. You write about this in the book. Right. You contemplate a plea, right. and it's your mother who oh, talks right. you out oh, of it. Oh, geez, yeah. I, I, I ordered, instructed one of my lawyer friends to get me a 20-year deal which would have got me out around 63, 64 years of age. And somehow he spilled, he spilled the beans to Charlie Canisi, who spilled the beans to my mother. And she sent Tony Diuto, the lawyer behind me, she sent Tony, my dear friend and, and, and attorney, up with a letter to basically read me a new backside. And in the letter, she basically said that, uh, John, you know, what are you doing? Your father called your mother Butch? Butch, As yeah. in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? Absolutely, yeah. How did she feel about you going into the life? She never knew. She never knew. He, he denied, denied, denied. He denied, uh, you know, it's, I, I guess he has reasons. He definitely has reasons because in my house, as it is in my home, it was in my father's home as well. That was none of her business, okay? However, I am her baby, just like my sons are my wife's baby, babies. Uh, yeah, he'd always denied it. He always denied it to her and said, I don't know what you're talking about. In fact, one time in the Post in 1993, there was a big picture of me on the cover and a bullseye on me that I was about to be killed. I guess through an informant, they leaked out that this conspiracy to kill me. And my mother, would un she would never go see my dad in Marion without me. Never. I come home. I, I race to the house, actually, to get her. Hope she didn't read the Post. And she's gone already. I asked my brother. I said, Pete, where's mommy? He says, I don't know. We didn't see her. Didn't see her. Call my sisters. Where is she? Where's your mother? Where's your mother? Where's your mother? I find out she's in Marion, Illinois. She goes right to Kennedy Airport. She jumps on a plane. 
to confront him. To confront him. How about could you, you? How could you do this to my son? I buried a son already. My son Frankie died in my arms in the street. How could you do this to me? How could you do this to me? I know it's painful. I do want to ask you about Frankie. You were 16. He was 12. Right, right. He's on a mini bike. Right. A neighbor hits him. Right. Uh, he's gone. Your brother. And soon thereafter, the neighbor disappears. Presumably, right. your right. father killed him or had him killed. Well, I couldn't answer that because it was way before me. And look, as I had answered in the book, as I had said in the book, if you knew my father, he's not letting you hurt somebody close to him without him hurting you. But doesn't that violate the coda? I thought that civilians never got caught up in this. And if it were inadvertent, if it were an accident, as hard as it would have been to forgive, why didn't that take place? Maybe it was something that maybe, and again, if my father did do this, it's something that, again, uh, a piece of his heart was cut right out. No, nobody heard the tears. My father soldiered up. The moment Frankie died, my father says, now's the time to cry and don't cry again. Leave it, leave it. He, that was his expectation of me. I couldn't deal with it like my father. I wasn't yeah, but you heard him crying. I wasn't half as strong as my father, okay? I couldn't deal with it the way my father dealt with it. He did. He let his tears out, and that was the end of it. However, I would hear him through the vent crying in his den. The I, air vent. I, I, Your my, room was... My room was attached to his den, yeah. to his den. So it was right there, it was inches apart. So I would hear my father. So, but at that point, he would say, basically, his expectation was you've got to soldier up and move on in life. Again, that being said, knowing the kind of man that my father was, he loved you, he loved you to a fault. If someone hurt you, they had a problem. You have six children of your own. What do you tell them about their grandfather? I tell, you, I tell my children, I tell my sons especially, uh, look, he made a wrong choice in his life. He chose to go down a wrong path, I think. Uh, again, what we started out earlier saying, and I think I, I got veered off slightly, was part of that conversation about perspectives I had with my father was that he said, I believe, and it's in the book, that when a man chooses a path, even if he comes to a realization at some point it was the wrong choice, as a man, you have to stay on that path. You've got to follow through on it. No quitters. And I guess I came to that realization that it was the wrong path and in his eyes, maybe I was a quitter. In my eyes, I think I made the right move, okay? That being said, I would say to my kids today that that was a man, wrong or right of his principles, whether you believe in him or not, okay, that stood by his principles, he stood by his beliefs, and in the end, again, love him, hate him, whatever your choice may be, he certainly paid for his sins. Do you worry that any of your kids will go into the life no, pursuing? No. Listen, I, I think I pretty much... Uh, set the tone where that could never happen because people look at it right now as a result of the way I had fought my trials okay and as a result of uh, my position it was a result of me talking to you right now okay I pretty much had set that tone that uh, I don't think they would be welcomed in that world and I thank God all right back in real time more lies ahead of my exclusive conversation with John Gotti Jr. my favorite segment is upcoming I'll tell you now the question that I ask is, which one gets it right? The Godfather, Goodfellas, or The Sopranos? And will you believe that John Gotti tells me, would you believe that John Gotti Jr. tells me, one of those he's never, ever seen? You're John Gotti Jr. and you've never seen The Godfather or Goodfellas or The Sopranos? Which one is it? You'll find out in just a sec. <laughs> This is, this, 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 this is the Michael Smirconish program. Sirius XM's POTUS, Channel 124. 
All right, coming up, segment three of four, the Gotti tapes here on POTUS, my conversation with John Gotti Jr. Wait until you hear the story he's about to tell about the lengths to which John Travolta is going to learn how to play the part of his father. Let me ask you which one gets it right. Godfather, Goodfellas, Sopranos. I've never watched The Sopranos. In my You've life. never watched I've never The Sopranos. I've never seen Why episode. not? I just, I don't know. How, know, could, how could John Gotti Jr. not be it. interested in The Sopranos? I never watched The Sopranos. You watched The Godfather? Did. I've loved The Godfather. I love the movie. One and two. Three's a little tough to watch. Terrible. It was Agreed. Still, it was he should, still, never, should have quit while he was ahead. Yeah. It was, then again, I'd have probably told Coppola to do that after one, so what do I know? Yeah, one and two. But how close does it come? I mean, listen, I'm reading your book about your wedding at the yeah. Helmsley Palace. Yeah, you know, beautiful. 350 grand, right, later given to you that the feds seize. I made more than that. Okay, that, but I'm... That was so, left over. So, <laughs> but I'm, but, left over. So I'm wondering, the, the movies, do they get it close? Uh, well, it depends on your perspective. Again, look, you could look at it... Um, I've had experiences flying around. You know, I've, I've spent some time in Florida. I've spent some time in Boston. I've spent some, everything is different. Everybody, I guess ran their household a different way. Uh, I guess you could take a mixture, again, not seeing The Sopranos, you could take that movie Goodfellas, and you could take The Godfather, I guess somewhere in the middle lies what it, actually, what it is in actuality. Uh, my, my observation would be, if you take those two movies and put them together, somewhere there lies the answer. Your father's downfall, ultimately, may be due to a couple of things, but one of them is that the social club where he did business, the right. apartment upstairs, right. you write about this in the book, right. was wired. Right. And so those conversations were all listened to. But the, the picture you paint is straight out of Goodfellas. Take me downstairs into the social club. Right. What's going on? Uh, paint the picture. Who's there got, and what are you got, doing? You've got, when John was there, when my father was there, I'll refer to him as John. When John was there, you would have 40, 50, 60 people there. Okay, when he would leave, everybody else left. They were there basically to see him. Okay, and what would happen when he's there is all the way in the back would be his table. And there'd be anybody who he wanted to invite at his table, uh, the closest guys to him, the older statesman, the elder statesman, would be at his table. And they'd be having an espresso. And they'd be just uh, shooting the breeze, talking about what's going on. Believe me, it could be... Talking business? No, no. Current events? Never in a, in a club would my father talk How about business. this? Politics? Did John Gotti oh, absolutely, senior? absolutely. What were what were his politics? Even, even defense strategies on cases, which is there was always a case going on. I can't recall a time since my dad's. Uh, let's see, uh, Paul dies. My father is somehow anointed to that position. Okay, Paul doesn't die. Your father has Paul knocked off. Well, he died. He still died, right? So now John is there, and there was never a time he wasn't fighting a case. I think we had. Somewhere from 85 to 90, case ends in 87 March. I think we have about uh, a year with his peace. He gets a boat, we go out, we relax, we're really starting to enjoy a little life. Maybe John's, my father's enjoying some of the fruits of that life. And then the cases start hitting and coming again. There was four cases again. He had four cases in a five-year period of time. And so, uh, you know, that would be discussed a lot. Did your father vote? No. He never voted. You're not allowed to vote. Convicted felons can't vote in this country. I can't vote. Uh, Sammy the Bull Gravano. Not only were there the tapes of the social club, but Sammy the Bull also becomes the, the highest level guy ever right. to turn. Right. He's alive today. He's in prison today right. in Arizona. Right. If you were to see him, you'd say what to him now? You know what? The closest I came to seeing him in recent years was we were in the hole together, believe it or not. I think I, I described that in the book as well. 
when I was in the MDC, I rolled into the MDC in 2001. He just gets arrested on this ecstasy case, and I'm on range one, and he's on range two in, solid, in the hole. And the orderly would come by me and say, you know, I got to sweep over by Gravano. And I'd purposely bang on his door and, you know, make him whine and tell the guard that I was irritating him. And I would just, like, you know, shrug it off, like, you know what? It is what it is, you know. Who am I to judge somebody? You forgiving? No, I'm not forgiving for him because it's, it's too close to home for me. That's my father. My father died in solitary confinement. My father spent more time than any other man in history of organized crime in solitary confinement without committing an infraction. That's the thing now. Those people say, well, there's other guys that stood longer in the, in the hole than your father. Right. But every one of them stabbed the guard, stabbed an inmate. You're saying he was a model prisoner. My father was a model man. I never heard a peep from the guy. You put him in the hole, give him a book, he'd jump up on his bunk and he'd read the book. He just passed the time. He wrote, he wrote impeccably, impeccable penmanship. He'd write a letter a day, whether it be my mother, myself, my wife, my sisters. It was numerous fans. He'd get 100 cards and letters a day. This is what he would do. He was a model inmate. This is what bothered us the most, is the fact that I would protest it, and he would send me these messages, mind your own business, mind your own business. Don't you undo what it took me all my life to do. Like I'm robbing his dignity. Is it true that John Travolta will play your father in a movie right. adaptation of your book? Correct. You think he'll nail it? Correct. I think he will. He's a, he's Why? A, he's an amazing actor. Uh, what's, he, what's he doing to learn all he can about your father? He'll talk to me on the phone, uh, reads the book. He's reading the book. He's calling, he'll call me up and ask me quotes. Well, let me, how, would he, how would he have said this? I, I'm sure I can't use those choice words on TV. He would say, well, would he, would he curse like this? Would he curse like that? Uh, how would he hold his hand? Would he shoot his wrist out and show off his watch and his ring? Would he, he's asking me all these little details. When he came to the house and seen my mother, met my mother, he insisted that I bring him upstairs to my father's bedroom. So okay. We walked upstairs to the bedroom, and he says, uh, John, you don't mind me asking, what side of the bed did he sleep on? Travolta wants to know. Right. My mother, my mother says, Johnny slept on this side of the bed. She called my father Johnny. Slept on this side of the bed. He says, Mr. Scott, do you, you mind if I lay in the bed? As long as I don't have to lay with you. <laughs> Travolta, laying yeah. in your father's bed he laid on to my, get the feel. He laid where my father would sleep. He laid on the bed. He laid, then he wanted to see his closet, and he was touching his suits. The suits are still and, there. And everything's there. My, my mother, my brother Frankie's room, Frankie Boy's room's the same way when he died. She won't, she just won't. She's, she's old school. She's old school. She's a tough old gal. Hey, we're back in real time. Pretty wild, huh? Travolta goes to the house. You know, thumbs the suits in the closet and then wants to lie down in the bed where John Gotti slept. Back with the remaining moments of my conversation with John Gotti Jr. right after this. Okay, coming up now, part four of four, my conversation with John Gotti Jr. Hey, what occurs to me is that in the book, you are critical of the way in which the media glamorizes the life and that it draws young street guys into yeah. it. So are you worried that if John Travolta is starring in a movie based on your book, yeah. you're going to play a role in other guys now heading into that path? And you're right. And the way I look at it is, again, from a father's viewpoint, um, I know better. And I, I, I would guess at your age, our age, we, you would know better as well. But look, as you said earlier regarding my own sons, yeah, it, does it, would it, could it, and will that destroy families? A father going off to prison, you think it doesn't hurt a kid? My whole life growing up, okay, and I'm not saying it affected me, in a, in a, but watching my siblings and watching my mother, sheep herders, prison, Lewisburg Penitentiary, Greenhaven, Dannemora, 
Marion, Illinois, all my life, basically. By the time I was 13, my father had almost nine in. So I spent a lot of time in visiting rooms. And what, you know, what was ironic uh, is the fact that years later, visiting my dad and being so intimidated by the walls in Lewisburg, and then myself being in Lewisburg in transit, you know, some 30-some-odd years later, I shook my head and said, wow, this is really something. Answer your question is, it does hurt families. It destroys families. You're leaving a, a good lady in an empty bed. You're telling her basically that you, you have to be alone. But let me tell you what's not in your book. What's not in your book is we were throwing a football out back. What's not in your book Never. is we went to the beach. We went camping. Never. We went fishing. Well, you did a little fishing maybe that one time. But, no, no we, but fished it, every, but, we did fish every summer. But it's, it's, it's sad. The kind of memories I hope I'm building yes. with, with my children and right. that you, I hope, are building with your children are totally absent. That never existed with my father. Go to a Jet game? Yes. Big Jet fan. Um, we go to a Yankee. My father's a big Yankee fan. We go to a Yankee game? Yeah, we do that. But it was always an event because there were six, seven guys coming with us. It was always an event. Did me and my father do these things alone? I can't recall ever. Let, I let think me. the first time my dad ever said he loved me was in Marion, Illinois. We had, a two in inch thick we had a two inch thick glass between us, and his way of saying it to me was, he seen I was a little tired. He seen I was getting, you know, the life was getting to me, you know, all the night, and I was fighting his appeal, and I was meeting with lawyers and running my own children and my businesses. Everything was just wearing me down. And he looked at me, and he hit the glass, and he says, uh, you know, I love you, right, pal? That was his way of saying it. And I looked at him and says, yeah, I know, Dad, I know, I know. He says, all right, good. He says, yeah, keep your head up. He stays strong. And, uh, you know, that was it. That was probably the first time in my life that he ever said that to me. I tell my kids every day. I told you, I have, my sons, I'm, a, I'm less than 5'9". My shortest son is probably six foot. And I, I don't, I'll grab them, I'll jump into bed with them, I don't care. I mean, I'll kiss them, I'll bite I, their I ears. Wanna, I want to ask you finally about your life today. Are you looking over your shoulder? No. Not at all? No. Nobody looking to hurt you, to kill you? You know, I don't believe I've irritated, well, I don't know what capacity I've irritated the government, what capacity maybe I've irritated people on the street. I really don't know. I know that I don't blame the government for any of my hardships in my life. I was a criminal, and I deserved to go to jail, and I went to jail. I've got a little bit of a problem, what happened after I had an agreement and went to jail and forfeited millions of dollars, how that a particular agent or agents just went off the reservation and went crazy on me. They just went crazy. I mean, they just made it a mission to destroy me, destroy me financially. I was kicked out of every bank. My buildings were seized, I lost my properties, and I spent millions paying lawyers fighting case after case after case. And not to mention, you know, again, I spent a, a significant amount of time in solitary confinement. So that being said, do I look over my shoulder? I don't know if these couple of agents have accepted you're, where, you're, I'm, at, you're where looking I'm at today. You're looking over your shoulder more at the feds absolutely. than you are made guys, is what I'm oh, hearing from you. Absolutely, absolutely. Because when you see guys today that you know are still leading the life. Right. Awkward. You know what? Case in point, three weeks ago, I'm in a restaurant with my wife. And kids that I raised, basically, when I was in that world, I raised these kids. They're now all in that world. You know, Howard Beach is really like the epicenter of Queens in that life. Uh, and I seen them, and it was awkward. Like, I, I nodded over to them, and they like, nodded over to me. And I guess you don't know, like, what it's... You, you profess to love somebody, and you raise a kid since he's little... They, Two years younger than I am, I was like the older brother, always guided them through life, always told them what my expectations were from them. Uh, listen, you got to do this, you got to do that, don't drink, don't do drugs. John Gotti, if John Gotti asks you to do it, John Gotti wants you to go to jail, you go to jail with pride for John Gotti, you die for John Gotti. 
this is the way I'm lecturing to these guys. And now suddenly they see that I went a different direction, that I'm no longer a part of that anymore. And they, say to me, they look and say, well, how do, we, how do we greet John? What do we do? It's awkward. And I'm sure people that they're affiliated with say, you know, he's not a part of us. Just ignore him. And I'm okay with that do because you work, I ignore them back. Do you work today? Yes, I do. What do you do? I write. Wrote a book, wrote some screenplays, uh, the, the movie. But is that what puts food on the table? Well, I own some. I mean, is it, is I, it buried I, somewhere? No, I, no, believe me. If, we, we can do the math. They tried to, in trial three, make it a money case and blew up this big Omo and said, connect the dots and follow the money. I told them, let me know when you're done because you're going to see there is no more money. Every case, every prosecution, it costs you a significant amount of money. Look, my last trial, I ran out of money. I couldn't even buy transcripts. So I started giving Charlie Canisi from my handwritten notes. I was giving him what the witnesses were saying, okay? And if you leave one word out, it changes the whole meaning of what he said. So Charlie would say, well, didn't you say such and such? I didn't say that. Maybe I made a mistake. Maybe he lied. I'm not sure because I couldn't afford transcripts. We asked the judge. I petitioned the judge, Your Honor. I've went for millions already fighting cases. You know, they wore me down. They beat me up. I can't get a loan. You took my house. You took everything I've got, my commercial property. Everything you seized from me, so I have no more money. I can't sell my jewelry. I have no more jewelry. I have my father's. I'm not going to sell it. That being said, can I at least get some transcripts, one set of transcripts? You have nine prosecutors and agents at the front table. There's nine people there. There was nine sets of transcripts and an extra set at the end of the table nobody's using. Can we have that set? Me and my two lawyers, can I have that set right there? No. And he denied me, denied the motion, no aid from the government, nope. no aid from the government, no aid regarding transcripts, not even transcripts? Your Honor, we showed you. We gave you my financials. We went for millions here. Whatever you made from the life, it's gone. That's what you're telling me. Yeah. And you know where I look at it? I look at his karma. I look at his karma. You're bad. Well, bad goes. That's the way it works. Okay? You've got to start anew. Make it a new beginning. It's a fresh and new start. Uh, the movie's being made on a screenplay that I had written with Leo Rossi. I'm proud of that. I'm proud of this. I had written this myself. This book was started and stopped the first time I came home in 2006. Twice. Finally, this is what you see right now is almost 600 pages, okay, in four and a half months. I had written this at breakneck speed. I'm also working on a, uh, a pilot with a Canadian company, uh, also Sony's assisting, and it's about uh, turn-of-the-century organized crime, Sicilian and Calabrian family that came over from Sicily and Calabria and set up their roots in Canada. And it's called Bloodlines, and it shows you how they married, a son married a daughter, and at some point they get ripped apart by war. And the grandchildren somehow get stuck in the middle of all of this. So I'm working on projects. I'm keeping busy. And I have, I have one commercial piece of property left that I have an income coming in. So I'm, I'm not starving. We're eating, as you can see. I'm okay. John Gotti, Jr., thank you. Thank Pre- you. Appreciate very much you being Thanks here. Thanks for having me, sir. Okay. Thank you. There you go. My conversation of a week ago with John Gotti, Jr. Now you've heard it all. CNN viewers have thus far been able to watch two clips. And tomorrow... They'll get to see the Gotti, the uh, Travolta clip because that will then air. And obviously, I've seen him on television with you now, and I, uh, you know, we posted the pictures and et cetera, so people can get a look at him. But what was he like? Like, what was your vibe about him? Did you buy into everything that he was saying about his, you know, 
reforming. I mean, we we went through all these tweets about, you know, people saying you get a lot of killer on your show and, you know, all, all the sort of bad side of things. But what's your vibe? What you see is what you get. What I what I show you on television is the exact same way that he was with me off camera, which is to oh, say, which is to say forthcoming. Others will have to judge the level of honesty when he says he's totally out of the life and so forth. I know what he read in the book and I, I ask the questions and you can be the judge of all that. Very personable, an engaging guy. Uh, he is uh, in the pictures that are in the book. He's he's he, he went through a, a big fitness weightlifting phase. He's not as big today as he was in a prior life. Interestingly, and you, you heard him say part of this uh, on television, but I talked to him about it off camera. He's got a son who is a, a mixed martial arts MMA fighter. And, and is six something, right? So, and yes, and he goes to these fights, uh, he, John Gotti Jr., and, and just, you know, sits there sort of grimacing at having to watch his son enter that ring. I mean, obviously, there's a, a gene there for physicality, right? Um, enter that ring, an apt metaphor. I. Like a lot of other, I'll say guys, because maybe it's it's a gender thing. I have a huge appetite for all of these stories and these personalities and so forth. And I guess I'm answering the question that I put to him, which is why if virtually everybody ends up dead or in jail, why do so many still want to pursue that life? And I think the answer is because it is intoxicating, to use the word that I used in the interview. And probably because they always think, well, it's not going to happen to me. I'm going to be the one. I'm going to be happen the to everybody else. I, I, the one thing I, I did not calculate, I wish I had and had asked him about this. My, my hunch is that his father probably spent half his life in jail. He said he spent the most time in solitary confinement of any mob figure. But imagine that. that. Was, uh, but but just just imagine that 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 you know one half of your life. Look, other people have more than half of their life. They commit a crime early. That's a heinous. He died in solitary crime. confinement with his jaw eaten away by cancer. I mean, what a way! Horrible it's way a to horrible go. Horrible way to go. Having you know just seen his son once in the last however many years, physically been able to touch him because that judge let him. Hey, one one other uh, comment, if I might make this, because this is an important subject to him. You heard discussion of the proffer, the three o two. There are those out there are those who believe that John Gotti Jr. wanted to cooperate with the feds and it was too lengthy an answer that he gave on television and it ended up on the cutting room floor. But you you heard it here. He says that's not the case, that he danced with them a little bit, but he really never had any intention of being a cooperative witness. Uh, There's a document out there supportive of the conversation that he had with them, although I think the feds filed it more than a year after they'd had an interaction with him. Book Club with Michael Smirconish. New episodes drop Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Listen to the Michael Smirconish program weekdays on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124 and anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com.